Sometimes in my house, you hear a scream, you hear a cry, usually preceded by a thud, a bump, an owl, something like that. And then somebody, one of the little ones, will come trotting down the stairs, crying, holding something. And the first question out of our mouths is usually, how bad is it? Sometimes it's, you know, who did it? But usually it's, how bad is it? If you're walking down the street and you see somebody injured, that's probably one of the first questions. Well, how bad is it? Or let me see. Let me see how bad it is. Because depending on the answer to that question, you may need to get a Band-Aid or an ambulance. I mean, there's there's a whole spectrum. There's a whole range of possibilities that come from the answer to the question, how bad is it? We're now in Genesis chapter 4. Genesis 1 through 3 is is the foundational text, I would say, of Scripture. It sets up who we are. We were made in the image of God to live in his presence, to worship him, glorify him, serve him, enjoy him forever and ever. And then we have the fall in Genesis chapter 3. And death and sin enters the world. And Adam and Eve are kicked out of the garden, out away from God's presence. And the world is fundamentally changed for the worse. So there's that natural question, okay, well, how bad is it? Is this a Band-Aid? Is this an ambulance? Is this something even more? Just how bad is this? I want to set up just a little demonstration. I've used this in the past. Uh, feel free to marvel at my wonderful graphics. That's fine. Uh, but <laughs> we were created to live in God's presence. We were created to live in the Garden of Eden, in God's presence, forever and ever and ever. Now, that doesn't mean we were just walking around picking flowers and, oh, isn't this wonderful, and doing nothing. No, God wired each one of us to be who we are, and he created the perfect environment to do that. So I don't think we were meant to just stay, you know, hunters and get, well, not hunters, but gatherers in the garden. We were made to produce music and technology and take the stuff of the worth of the earth and do things with it for the glory of God. But we were made to do it in God's presence, free from sin, living in absolute life. And then sin enters the world. Adam and Eve rebels, rebel against God in Genesis chapter 3. They say, thank you, but no thank you, God. We want to do this on our own. Instead of having God be the king of their life, they said, we want to do it. And it sets up this alternative. And it's into this alternative, this world governed by sin and death, that we are all born into. This is the world that we live in. We may want to be born over here. We may want to live over there. We don't have a choice. This is where the world is now. It is lost. It is fallen. But how bad is it exactly? And so we're going to pick up the story in Genesis chapter 4 and look at two of Adam and Eve's kids, eventually three. But we're going to start with Cain and Abel. Some names that are probably familiar to you and not necessarily in a good way. And we're going to start by looking that right after the fall, right after Adam and Eve are kicked out of the Garden of Eden, the answer to the question, how bad is it, is it's really bad. It's really, really bad. Because right here we see that there is sin that is crouching and wants to devour Let's look at just the first 16 verses. In fact, let's look at verses 1 and 2. Adam made love to his wife Eve, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. She said, with the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. Later, she gave birth to his brother Abel. If you remember in the fall, God had told them if they ate of the the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they would surely die. So they eat of the tree, 
and God comes and he confronts them. And they're expecting something. This is it. We're done. We're over. My life is over. And God starts talking about their children. He starts talking about a line, generations that will come from them, even a a savior, a seed, a promised one that would come and crush Satan. And we talked about how their ears must have sort of perked up, went, "Wait, wait a minute, so it's not all over. That doesn't mean that God was wrong, because death did enter the world. They would eventually die as a punishment for their sin. But there was also this promise of hope. And so here we have those words repeated and and kind of tied in in these first two verses. Here's Eve saying, I have brought forth someone. I have given birth. I thought it was all over. But God's grace is not done with us yet. And then we meet these two, Cain and Abel. Look at verses 3 through 5. Now Abel, back up to the end of verse 2. Now Abel kept flocks and Cain worked the soil. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord, and Abel also brought an offering, fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. And the Lord looked with favor with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry, and his face was downcast. Now what's going on here? First of all, a lot is made of the sacrifices that they offer. And there's something to be said for that. But I want us to understand the emphasis of the text is on Cain. The whole emphasis of this text is on who Cain is and the decisions he's making. There's very little emphasis on the sacrifices they give. This is not Cain doing something horribly wrong and awful and offering a certain thing that God clearly said not to, and he's offering it anyway. I I don't really see that. The only indication we have that anything is is even remotely off is that there's an emphasis when it comes to Abel's sacrifice in verse 4 that Abel brought fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. Now, if you are a shepherd or you care for livestock, this is a way of saying he brought the best of the best. This was literally a sacrifice for him. He took the best that he had and he was giving it up to God. And when we see Cain's sacrifice, verse 3, Cain brings some of the fruits of the soil. There isn't the same emphasis. I don't want to read too much into that. Some have said, well, Cain brought plants and God wants an animal sacrifice because only animal sacrifice can atone for sin. Fair enough, but there's no indication here that this is an atoning sacrifice. And in the Old Testament law, there were grain sacrifices. Farmers could bring of their sacrifice. So I don't really see that here. I think the issue is the attitude of the worshiper. It's a heart condition in Cain. Now I say that just slightly based on what we see here, because this is pretty minor. One says he brings the best of the best, the other not so much. I say that mostly because that's what we see in the rest of this chapter. Cain has a heart problem. So let's look at what goes on. Cain, it says, realizes that for some reason God has not accepted his sacrifice. And God has accepted Abel's sacrifice. There's no indication of punishment here. There's no indication of God being angry at Cain. It's simply that he accepted Abel's and he didn't accept Cain's. And there could have been an opportunity for Cain to say, okay, God, hey, what did I do wrong? Let let me change this. I want to do this right. Instead, how does Cain respond? He's angry. Who's he angry at? Well, it doesn't really say, but I think he's angry at Abel 
because of what happens next. I think he's also angry at God. There's this sense of, why God? This isn't fair. I did everything right. What you don't see in Cain is any inclination of, God, I want to make this right. God, I really want to do what you want, so so I'll change what I'm doing. There's none of that. It's more like, God, you need to change what you're doing to justify me because I am right. So then the sin enters. Look at verses 6 through 8. Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. This is strong language. God gives Cain a choice. I think this is really important here. Cain has a choice in this situation. There are two roads that he can choose. One is to do the right thing and be accepted. We'll talk about that in a second. But the other is to allow sin to have him. Literally to be devoured by sin. The picture is of an animal crouching at his door, ready to spring on him as soon as he opens that door and walks through it. Sin is vicious. And it is in the world. No longer do we have a serpent or some indication of Satan right there trying to tempt him. This is now sin. It's probably his own sin and the sin that is in the world, and it is ready to eat him alive. And so Cain makes a choice. In verse 8, Now Cain said to his brother Abel, Let's go out to the field. While they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. This is not described as what might be called a crime of passion, as if that would make it any better. This is described as a premeditated, on-purpose, thought-out, I'm going to kill my brother Abel. This is where Cain has gotten to. So the question of how bad has sin gotten right away in the first generation is, it's really, really bad. To the ancient culture, I think this is pretty bad to us. I mean, to kill your own brother is, is awful. But the family ties in the ancient culture were such that when the Israelites heard this, they would have immediately have just said, this is probably one of the worst sins you could do. Maybe secondarily only to killing your own father. To kill your brother was just an outright betrayal of your identity, of God, of your family, of everything that was important to you. Cain killed his brother. This act and what follows really shows what's going on. In Cain's heart. He is making a choice. He could have chosen not to sin. And the the indication here is that he could have ruled over his sin, meaning he wasn't a total victim. He could have said no to that sin and not followed that path. He purposely chose to go the wrong way. That's how bad sin is. So now look at how God confronts Cain in verses 9 through 16. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is your brother Abel? I don't know, he replies. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, What have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Now you are under a curse and driven from the ground, which opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it will no longer yield its crops for you. You will be a restless wanderer on the earth. Look at Cain's response. Cain basically says two lies. 
God asks him, where is your brother? And the first lie is, I don't know. I don't know. And the language of this is really referencing back to Genesis chapter 3. And again, it's answering this question, how bad is it? Because Adam and Eve, after their sin, they, they hid in the garden. They tried to hide from God. And God came to them and questioned them. And they tried to get out of it. Here Cain is doing the same thing. And the, the intentional point here is sin continues in its destructive nature. What happened in Genesis 3 was not a one-off sort of thing. It wasn't a, oops, that's too bad, but now we can do better. It's no, that thing that destroyed Adam and Eve is in the world, it's in us, and it seeks to devour us. Everything has changed. We can't just go back and try harder and it'll all be okay. Everything has changed. The second lie that Cain does, or that he says, is really a question. Am I my brother's keeper? The reason that's a lie is because Cain clearly expects the answer to be no. The Israelites would have seen it different. They clearly expected that the answer was absolutely. Absolutely you are your brother's keeper. Absolutely you are the keeper of your brother or sister in Christ or your brother or sister in the nation of Israel. Absolutely we have a responsibility for one another. We are connected in the family of God and we have a responsibility for one another. Cain is connected to Abel, and he definitely had a responsibility for his brother, a responsibility that he betrayed, so much so that he kills him. Now look at verse 10. The Lord said, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. This, on the one hand, is a vicious statement. It's, it's a very graphic portrayal of Abel is somewhere laying in a field, dead. And Cain is trying to cover that up and pretend he knows nothing about it. And God says, no, no, I see that body. I see that blood. And it's crying out to me. But I also see a great hope in this passage. Because here was Abel out in the middle of Nowhere. Nobody seemingly saw this act. Cain thought he had it all together and had this whole thing hidden and that Abel was a victim and nobody knew about it. And God says, I know better. His blood is crying out to me. There are a lot of atrocities that are committed in this world that nobody will ever know about. And maybe you've had them even in your own life where somebody has hurt you or wronged you in some way and nobody knows about it. There's one thing I see in this verse. God knows. God knows what happened. The God of all justice and righteousness and mercy and forgiveness, he knows. There's no such thing as an unknown victim. The flip side of that is equally true. No matter what we do, no matter how much we try to do it in secret, God knows. And and the consequences of our sin cry out to him. For justice, God, make this right. It's a double-edged sword, isn't it? It's comforting when you're being hurt. It's very confronting when you're the one doing the hurting. Now look at what happens to Cain. Verse 11, now you are under a curse. I didn't talk about this too much last week because I wanted to wait until now. Turn back to chapter 3, verse 17. 
We talk often about the curse upon Adam and Eve, but it's very interesting. If you look at chapter 3, Adam and Eve actually aren't cursed. The serpent is cursed. The ground is cursed because of Adam. Creation is messed up. Adam and Eve are kicked out of the garden. Now, I'm not saying that's a small thing. That's a big thing. But it doesn't use the word curse. For God to curse someone is very severe. That's a huge, huge deal. Now, what happens to Adam and Eve is huge, but they are still in a place of the possibility of redemption. That's what the rest of Scripture is about. Although they are lost and destined for death, they can be saved. Cain has evidently just crossed a line. Cain is now cursed by God. Could God at some point, if Cain repented or turned back to him, could maybe Cain come back to him? I don't know. That story is not in Scripture. It's a terrifying reality. We don't know. But Cain has now crossed a line. And so now, instead of just the ground being cursed for Cain and things being difficult, Cain is actually cursed. And it's a hard, hard curse. Look at what happens to him. That which was difficult growing food, growing plants off the ground that was part of the curse on the ground in Genesis 3 has now become even worse. No longer will the ground produce for Cain. It's gotten worse. That which is difficult has become even more difficult. Beyond that, he will now be a wanderer. He will be lost in the wilderness. He is cut off, destined to just go out on his own and wander aimlessly. This is a terrifying prospect. And again, this is coming in a culture where it was your ties in the community that were your identity. This is going to come up again when we come to Abraham because the same thing is going to happen to Abraham but for a very different reason. God is going to say you need to leave your family. You need to leave your father's household. You're going to, in a sense, wander, but it's not an aimless wandering. You're going to go to the place I tell you to go and there I'm going to do something new for you. But for Cain, it's just the opposite. He's going to be a restless wanderer, not finding satisfaction anywhere that he goes. Look at his response in verses 13 and 14. He says, Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is more than I can bear. Today you are driving me from the land and I will be hidden from your presence. I will be a restless wanderer on the earth and whoever finds me will kill me. There's a whole series of statements here. He recognizes that God is driving him from the land. This is what has sustained him. And in a sense, Cain betrayed it by killing his brother. So he says, that which I have trusted in for my own satisfaction to feed me, I am now driven out from it. But he goes on. There's a spiritual element to it as well. He says, I will be hidden from your presence. This is a terrifying prospect to be hidden from the presence of the life-giving God. It is to live, in a sense, a walking death, aimlessly wandering apart from God's blessings. And he says, I'll be a restless wanderer on the earth. And then he says something that God is going to correct him on. He says, whoever finds me will kill me. And God says, not so. Even in your wandering, even in this curse, I'm going to follow you and put my mark of grace upon you. Even in the punishment, God is going to protect him. 
from some of the consequences of his sin. This is really interesting because, again, I think it's fascinating to look at the context of this. The Israelites are receiving the book of Genesis as they're walking from Egypt to the promised land. Somewhere in there, as God meets with Moses on a day-to-day basis and he's writing out the Pentateuch, the first five books of the law, somewhere in there, he writes out the book of Genesis. And I assume either over time or all at once, it gets read to the nation of Israel. So as they're thinking about this covenant relationship, this promise God is making to them, as they think about God's presence with them in the tabernacle, as they think about the importance of the law, here comes this text. And in the law, what Cain did was very clearly punishable by death. Cain should have died for killing his brother. The Old Testament law is abundantly clear on that. And yet God says, no, you will live. And that sets up something that runs. In fact, we've seen it already, even in Genesis chapter 3. These little bits of grace that go on, even in this fallen world, as bad as it is, and as worse as it will be, God still has grace on people. And so he says, verses 15 through 16, But the Lord said to him, Not so. Anyone who kills Cain will suffer vengeance seven times over. Then the Lord put a mark on Cain so that no one who found him would kill him. So Cain went out from the Lord's presence and lived in the land of Nod, east of Eden. It's interesting what it says in verse 16. Because when Adam and Eve sinned, God pushes them east out of the garden and puts up a wall, a flashing sword, a guardian between the Garden of Eden, the perfect place of God's presence, and now this place of wandering that they live in outside the garden. Cain now is pushed further away. He now is wandering in an even worse place. The land of Nod means a place of wandering. Cain absolutely understands what's going on here. Things that just got worse or got bad because of sin have now gotten worse because of his own sin. There are consequences. Before we go on, I want to talk a little bit about this choice that was offered to Cain. What is this curse? And I want to go back to this really fancy diagram here. We are now separated from God. So now I've put Cain up here, right? So here's Cain. He lives, just as we all do, in a land that is governed by sin in a land that is destined for death. Really happy thoughts. right? We'll get to salvation in a second. But there's his situation. And over here is God, the author of life, promising eternal life to all who believe. So the question is, what is the choice that is being offered to Cain? And some say, well, it's this choice. If he does the right things, he will be accepted back into the perfect presence of God. If we just do the right things, we can go back into the garden, be accepted by God, and be saved. There's just a huge problem with that. It completely goes against everything that Scripture says about salvation. But we say, but it seems like that's what it's saying here. But the rest of Scripture clearly says there is nothing we can do to save ourselves. We are hopelessly, utterly, completely lost in our own sin. And apart from the very work of God through Jesus Christ, there is no salvation. So what's going on here? I want to suggest a different way. And I hope that you'll see this applies a lot more than just Genesis chapter 4. And it's this. I hope you can see that. Within this world of sin that we live in, things can get better and they can get worse. 
but they never get out of the world of sin. You with me so far? Those that follow and do good things, in general, get good things. That's an overarching thing in Scripture. And so you move closer to this place of blessing. It's still in this lost world, still destined for death, but it's not as bad as it could be as what happened for Cain. Cain went the other way. He went further away from God's presence. Now, throughout Scripture, there is a place where God works. It's a place or a group of people, a place of obedience and blessing where he reveals himself to people. He gives us his law. He gives us who he is and helps us to understand his goodness and his graciousness and his mercy. If you were brought up in the church, you were brought up with some blessings, whether you chose to ignore it or not, you were brought up with some blessings that somebody not brought up in a church might not have had. Now again, that doesn't mean you accepted them, but they were there for you. Now, I find this very interesting because the Israelites were faced with the same choice. They were told to do certain things, to obey the law. And a lot of times we think, and eventually the Israelites started to think, well, if they would just obey the law, this, whoops, wrong way, this would happen to them. They would be saved. But the Old Testament portrays the law this way. The law keeps them in a place of blessing. It is good but it doesn't save them. Do you see the difference? This is a big difference because often you will come across passages in Scripture that seem to say, if we obey, if we do certain works, good things will happen. And that's true. They are good, but nothing can cross that dividing line between us and God. God has to cross it. And that's why Jesus Christ had to come. So the choice that is offered to Cain is to live in a place, even in this sinful lost world, where God will still bless him and watch over him and reveal himself to him, or to wander farther away. It's a choice we each wake up with every single morning. How are we going to live today? Am I going to go my own way, farther away from God? Am I going to have to experience more of the consequences of what I'm doing, less of his blessings in my life? Or am I going to trust him and follow him? Those actions won't save me, but they allow me to know who God is more and more. And God is the one who saves. Let's go on and look at three threads now in the rest of this passage that will run all throughout Scripture. The first thread is developing culture. The world continues to grow, continues to develop music, arts, uh, technology. Let's look at verses 17 through 22. Cain made love to his wife and she became pregnant and gave birth to Enoch. Cain was then building a city, and he named it after his son, Enoch. To Enoch was born, I can't say all these names, Irad, and Irad was the father of Mahujael, and Mahujael was the father of Methuselah, Methushael, and Methushael was the father of Lamech. Lamech married two women, one named Ada and the other Zillah. Ada gave birth to Jabal. He was the father of those who live in tents and raise livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of those who played string instruments and pipes. Zillah also had a son, Tubal-Cain, who forged all kinds of tools out of bronze and iron. Tubal-Cain's sister was Nema. It's one of those passages you should put up on your, uh, your, your mirror in the morning and try to you know, memorize and just give you great encouragement every day. Okay, not so much. But what's going on here? In these passages, we have mention of the first development of a city, verse 17, 
There seems to be some sort of further development of farming and raising of livestock in verse 18. We have the development of music in verse 21 and the development of technology, specifically weapons, uh, working with iron or, or with metals in verse 22. So there's this developing culture. Culture plays a big role in Scripture. And I think it's important at this juncture to see that there is nothing good or bad said about this developing culture. Throughout the ages, some Christians have said, well, all technology, all culture, all progress is bad. Stay away from it. Go live on a farm somewhere. Get rid of all electricity. Just stay away from it all. I don't see that here. There's no negative connotation given to this other than the fact that it is the family of Cain, which is pretty bad. But other than that, it's just sort of listed off. There's a flip side, though. As Christians, and this probably applies more to us, Sometimes we're eager to grab onto anything new. Anything new is necessarily good. This is wonderful. It's going to help us. It's going to save us. This will be great for so many people. And we grab onto it. That's not here either. In fact, in the cultures around Israel, when technology comes or any progress in the culture, it's usually described as given from the god or goddess to the people. Here I give you fire. Here I give you music. Here I give you stone or metalwork or whatever it is. And it's this, oh, God has given us this technology. This is wonderful. That's not here. And I think it's very purposefully not here. Because God is saying, be careful. And throughout Scripture, there is this thread. There are cities, Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, eventually, we'll see the Tower of Babel. We'll see other cities as, as the Israelites moved into the promised land. There was city after city. And these things could be good, but they could also be a huge stumbling block. So this is one thread that runs through. Culture can be good. In the Psalms, we have clear evidence of the use of instruments to praise God, specifically guitar-like things, I'm just saying. Uh, <laughs> just saying. But culture can also be dangerous. The question, kind of like Cain, is the heart of the worshiper. Are we using it for ourselves or are we using it for God? The second thread that we see is this thread of sin and boasting. Look at verses 23 through 24. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, listen to me, wives of Lamech, hear my words. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for injuring me. If Cain is avenged seven times, then Lamech 77 times. This man here, for whatever reason, feels he needs to impress his wives, which that's another side issue as well. This is the first time of, of polygamy being addressed. Two wives. A lot of people say, oh, the Bible teaches that, that there should be you know, more than one wife. That's actually not true. In fact, there's many places where it's cautioned against and, and referred to in a negative way. But it was something in the span of history God picks and chooses when he's going to address different things. And it was something in his, his wisdom in the Old Testament he allowed even though he was against it and he dealt with it later. But here we see the first instance of it coming up is obviously in a guy's life who I would say is not somebody we want to follow. Not somebody who was a good example. So here he is boasting to his wives. And the boast is that some young guy, now this is... Probably not so young to be a child, but young enough, maybe a, a early adolescent, late adolescent. But it's somebody that clearly would have been under Lamech's authority as an elder. It's somebody that would have looked up to him. It's somebody that he had, uh, Lamech had some responsibility for just by being an elder over him. 
And instead of that all going well, Lamech says, this guy injured me. We don't know if it was physical or if it was simply saying something bad. But whatever it is, it's clearly minor. But for Lamech, because of his pride and his boasting, he turns it into something major. And so he killed this young man. Again, the question, how bad is it? It's really bad. Sin is awful. Look at how it just keeps going and going. As if it's not bad enough to kill this young man, he's boasting about it. I am right for killing him. You should be proud of me for killing him. And if anybody tries to do anything for me, if Cain was going to be avenged seven times, I will be avenged 77 times. That's how great I am. I see that in our world sometimes. Sometimes I see that as sin weaves its threads and as people grab onto it, it it not only goes to, I shouldn't do this and I did, and then it moves to, I really don't think this is that big a deal, to, I don't think this is wrong, and now it moves to, aren't I great for doing this? And there's that progress. Have you seen that in our culture? We get to a point where we're boasting about doing the very thing that God said not to do. Now, Christian, let me caution you. These are general trends and threads. And we can look at the world and we can look at the news and we can say, oh my goodness, our world, isn't that awful? Look at your own heart because you're going to see it there too. We're very quick to look at the world and see those trends. That's easy. The news puts it in front of us every day. I think we're very slow to look at our own heart and say, what am I excusing? What am I justifying? What am I possibly even boasting in? There's a caution there for us. There's a third thread. And this is the lifeline. The lifeline. Look at verses 25 and 26. Adam made love to his wife again, and she gave birth to a son and named him Seth, saying, God has granted me another child in place of Abel, since Cain killed him. Seth also had a son, and he named him Enosh. At that time, people began to call on the name of the Lord. Do you remember the promise to Eve in chapter 3, verse 15? You can look back there if you want to. But there was a promise that she would have a child. Somebody from the seed, this, this offspring of hers, would come. And somebody would come that would be the serpent crusher, the one who destroys the power of sin and the serpent. So now they're in a situation, and it's very interesting that Adam and Eve are not mentioned until really at the beginning here and here at the end. And I wonder how they felt through this chapter. They just learned that one of their children killed their other child, and now that child that killed them is a restless wanderer and cast out from God's presence. Things aren't going great for Adam and Eve here. This is rough. As if that's not rough enough, they've got to be wondering, what about this promise? Who's going to crush the serpent? It can't be Cain. Certainly can't be Abel now. Where is this going to come from? And so they have another child. And this is where this third thread, this lifeline, takes place. And it's a line, generational line, that weaves its way through history. It goes from Seth to his child, Enosh, It will wind its way through Noah. It will wind its way to Abraham through the nation of Israel, through King David, and eventually to Jesus Christ, the serpent crusher. 
It's the lifeline of God's plan that has never changed and never been undermined by sin and will continue. And it says here at this time, with this birth of this child, people began to call on the name of the Lord. This is a calling out in belief, in faith, in trust, and in a recognition that they need salvation from God and from God alone. Even in the sin of the world, we see this clear evidence of the thread of God's grace and God's plan at work. So how bad is it? It's bad. It's always been bad. We like to say, oh, things are worse now than they were before. It's pretty much always been bad. And there will be times that are worse and times that might look better, but it's pretty much still all really bad. That doesn't mean there's no good in the world. There's still blessings and grace of God at work. There are still good people doing good things, and it has a good impact on the world. But nothing can cross that divide between us and God. In fact, we're not done with looking at how bad it is. That thread is going to continue all the way through chapter 11. It's going to go through one of the most horrific passages in the Old Testament, Noah's Ark. We celebrate it with cute animals and cute decorations in a child's room. It's a message of death and destruction when God wipes out the sinners of this world. It's going to go through the Tower of Babel when God scatters the people over the face of the world. But there's also this thread of grace that will get picked up in chapter 12 with the calling of Abraham and the beginning of God's people and God's work among his people, blessing them and establishing that relationship. He crosses the boundary we can't and begins his work in this lost and sinful world. In the meantime, we have some choices. We can embrace our sin, make excuses for it, justify it, live defiantly, redefine what sin is. We can do that. But then we need to look to Cain and say, here's a pretty good example of what happens. Or we can trust God. We can call on his name. We can follow where he leads, get to know him better, seek the blessings that he's given us through his word and say, God, this is who you are, not who I think you are, not who I say you are. You are who you are. And I will get to know who you are based on your clear revelation. But I want you to hear this. Because as bad as what happened with Cain is, I want you to know something. You are never too far for God to reach you. That's another thread. It doesn't come up in this chapter so much, but it runs all throughout Scripture. God has a great track record of reaching into messed up, clearly lost, wandering people, far from his grace, far from his mercy, far from his blessing, living in rebellion and saying, you are going to be saved. Come back to me. You are never so far that God's grace can't reach out to you. Abel's blood cried out against Cain. In Hebrews 4.24, it says that Jesus' blood speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Abel's blood cried out in condemnation, declaring Cain was guilty and cursed. Jesus' blood for all who believe cries out in righteousness. The penalty has been paid. The question is, which way are we going to go? Trusting our own way of dealing with things? are trusting in the beautiful, precious, and life-giving, saving blood of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, 
God, it's hard in a world where people are hurting and struggling. It's hard sometimes to look at passages like this. I know. But God, the encouragement comes through your plan. It comes through your character and your nature. It comes through your salvation that you are giving us, that is revealed to us throughout your word. And God, the comfort comes through knowing we need to be saved, which means we need to recognize the sin that's going on. As hard as that is, we must stare it in the face and say, I see it. I'm wrong. I repent and I turn away from it. I need to be saved. And I can only be saved through your gift of grace, through your Son, Jesus Christ. And so, God, I pray if there's anyone here who finds themselves wandering, may they hear this morning they're not too far away. There is still this offer of salvation. The blood of Jesus Christ, the salvation that Christ gives can reach into the deepest, darkest corner, the deepest, darkest life. It can reach through the worst of hurts and bring healing. But we need to cry out to you and say, I trust in you and in nothing else. And we need to follow you where you're leading us because that's part of that trust. And so I pray this morning that we would do that, that we would be people that display in our lives that trust in you because they need to know the gospel so desperately. It's in the name of Jesus Christ we pray. Amen.